Palm Sunday. So this is the sixth Sunday of Lent, the final Sunday of Lent. It's, it's amazing. It just seems like we just had Ash Wednesday, and now it's been actually 50 days, almost um, 46 days, I think, because they don't count Sundays. But the 40 days of Lent plus the six Sundays, it's, it's already practically elapsed. We've got one more week to go before Easter. So we're here. And in that liturgical calendar, Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week. Holy Week being the week, of course, before Easter. But each day of Holy Week has a name and has a significance and has associated scriptural passages that are traditionally read and have been read for centuries in the church. And they all have kind of funny names. You know, we got Palm Sunday. Actually, yesterday was uh, Lazarus Saturday, um, uh, you know, commemorating Lazarus being risen from the tomb, which happened just before Jesus re-entered Jerusalem today on Palm Sunday. Tomorrow is Fig Monday. Probably you never heard of that one, except in here. Yeah, you have? Okay. And that commemorates the cleansing of the temple, but also the cursing of the fig tree, hence the name. Tuesday is Holy Tuesday and is dealing with the the uh, wise and the foolish virgins and the idea of being ready always with lamp, oil in your lamps and ready for the bridegroom to return. So with a the theme of readiness, and we go into Spy Wednesday, Spy Wednesday, which is dealing primarily with uh, Judas Iscariot's secret meeting with the Sanhedrin to plot against Jesus, but also that beautiful scene where Mary, um, the sister of Lazarus, brings in the expensive perfume and pours it over Jesus' feet. And, of course, Judas is incensed because that was expensive and could have been kept for the poor. And the juxtaposition between those two attitudes is on display on Spy Wednesday. And then we move to Monday Thursday. And Monday is a word that is archaic. We don't know it anymore. But it comes out of Jesus' new commandment, mandatum novum in uh, in Latin, and mandatum then gets kind of shortened into mandi in Old English. And so Maundy Thursday is a story of the Last Supper and everything that happens in the Last Supper. And so many things do happen in the Last Supper. There's the washing of the feet. There is the institution of the Eucharist and so on and so forth. But the new commandment that he gives there, you know, just love each other as I have loved you. This is the commandment. He says that everyone is going to know you as my followers by your love. Again, back to the primacy of love. And from there in John, the great prayer at John 17 for unity before they move out into the Garden of Gethsemane for the, the prayer, all-night prayer that happens there and the sweating of blood, which is an actual human physical possibility if you're under enough stress before he's arrested and taken to the midnight trial. And then we go into Holy Sat I'm sorry, Good Friday, which is the actual story of the crucifixion, of course, and then Holy Saturday, where he's resting in the tomb. It's called the Great Sabbath in the Eastern churches. And then, of course, Easter Sunday. So that's the, 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 the scape, the scope of Holy Week. Each day has both a scriptural and a spiritual significance. And if we're aware of those, they can bring us in. The daily devotionals that Marian mentioned are going to be bringing those details out for each day. And, of course, one went out this morning for Palm Sunday, and we'll go each day until Holy Saturday. So if you do want to be included in that and you're not on our list, go ahead and let us know. So each 
day of Holy Week is going to advance the story. But today, we're dealing with Palm Sunday. We're dealing with Jesus re-entering the city of Jerusalem. So let's set the scene a little bit, because we need to understand the context. Context is everything. Jesus is returning to Judea. Where is he returning to to Judea from, of course, would be the first question. Well, he was trans-Jordan. He was on the other side of the Jordan River. If you have ever looked at a map of Israel, the Jordan River runs north to south. And in the space of the actual territory of, uh, of Israel, from the Sea of Galilee, and then it drains into the Dead Sea. And even to this day, it forms the eastern border of Israel with Jordan. So Jesus would have been in today's Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River. Why is he over there? Why is he not teaching either in the Galilee, where he was home from, or in Judea, which was the center of Jewish power? No, things were getting too hot for him in Judea. He had been ramping up, you know, the... uh, his uh, profile, his notoriety among the people, but at the same time, he's ramping up the animosity against him. It was no longer safe for him. John tells us that he was walking in Galilee before he went to the other side of the Jordan because he was unwilling to walk in Judea. It was just not safe. There was too many things going on. If you were to read John 7 to 10 or Matthew 19 to 21, you would get a sense of this get a sense of the tension that is building. Now, tension had been building in Israel for generations. Ever since the Romans took over in the first century BCE, tension had been building. There was a group called the Zealots, the Kanaim. They were the, the guerrilla terrorists of their day, and they were fomenting assassinations and riots and anything that they could to destabilize Roman power. And so that's all growing as well. But in this last few months of Jesus' ministry, the attention is getting focused more and more on him. And the followers and the authorities alike are getting restless. They're getting antsy because they want definitive answers. They want to know what's going on here. And they're not really sure. For generations, they had been looking for a Mashiach. They've been looking for a savior that they understood as a warrior king who would come and throw out the foreign oppressor and reestablish the sovereign nation of Israel. They were looking for that person. And they're looking everywhere and they're wondering. And so with Jesus coming on the scene with this kind of power, with this kind of attraction to the people, they're wondering, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? But he's not telling them. He's not playing the game politically as they would expect. And so they don't know. And so one high, on one hand, hopes are being raised. On the other hand, the frustration is growing. They want to know, are you the Christ? Greek for Mashiach, Greek for the anointed one, for the Savior. Are you the one? Are, and what are your plans? What are you planning on doing? Are you God's son? That was another question that was roiling around at this time. And that one, of course, was heretical to the Jews. If Jesus claimed to be God's son, that was something that was going to completely changed the whole idea of what's going on here. And some people left over this idea. Some of his followers couldn't hang with him anymore because of the things that he was trying to get across to them, metaphorically, of course, but they left. Others actually picked up stones and wanted to stone him, was how, how far this had gone. And, of course, the authorities put out a hit on him. They, they plotted to kill him, to assassinate him, to do anything they could. They wanted to assassinate Lazarus as well because he was a focus of attention having been raised from the dead as a proof of Jesus' power as proof of Jesus' connection with God. So they wanted them both gone at this point. 
So all of this is going on, and it is getting so difficult for him to even move about in Judea. He goes across the Jordan. He goes to the other side of the river to try to cool things off. Now, meanwhile, at the same time, within his own circle, inner circle, within his own circle of, of, of closest followers, division is also fomenting there. Because as Marion said, they didn't really understand who Jesus was at this point. They were still looking at him as Jews looked at the situation. And just as he's about to go back to Judea, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, actually come to Jesus. She kneels down uh, before him and, and asks him, would you please say that my two sons can sit on your right and left hand when you come to power? They still didn't get it. They didn't get what he was about. They still thought that he was going to be the one who was this warrior king. And of course, that just set the rest of the disciples off against those two and against the mother. So everybody is fighting and jockeying for their position and and expecting things to happen. And it is in this milieu, it's in this uh, atmosphere, that word comes that Lazarus is sick unto death. He's across the Jordan, and he hears that Lazarus is sick. But he stays there for three more days and keeps doing what he's doing because he had a lot of people that he was ministering to there as well. But then he crosses the Jordan into Jericho, and then he comes to Bethany, which is only about two miles from Jerusalem. So he's in Judea now. And by the time he gets to Lazarus's home, he's already dead. And we know that story where he raises him from the dead. But this brings him within two miles of Jerusalem. He's right there. The followers were shocked that he even wanted to go back to Judea. It's too hot. They try to talk him down, try to talk him out of it. Jesus knows this, but it doesn't matter. He knows that he's, what he's doing. He knows where he needs to go. It's at this point that Thomas says, let's just go and die with him. You know, it's interesting. Thomas is pointed out as the the doubting one, the coward, right? Because he wants proof of Jesus' resurrection when that comes around. But he's the one of all of them who just said, let's go with him. Let's die with him if it comes to that. But they were shocked. They're trying to keep him back. But when he comes and he does raise Lazarus from the dead, then everybody goes abuzz. Everybody is talking about Jesus. He is on their lips because of this sign that he has given and everything that has led up to this. And this is all happening right at the beginning of Pesach. Pesach, the feast of the Passover. It's one of the Shalosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage festivals. You got Pesach, you got Shavuot, you got Sukkot. All those three necessitated by Jewish law that all, at least male Jews, would come back to the temple, come back to Jerusalem, and fulfill their obligations there at the temple. This meant that Jews were coming from all over the Eastern Mediterranean, from North Africa, from the deserts, from Greece, from what is now Turkey. All of these areas, these Jews were flooding in to Jerusalem to fulfill their obligations there. Just as Jesus is coming back, just as all of this tension is mounting at the same time. Now, you've got to imagine that this is Rome's worst nightmare. They are so worried about anything that would disrupt the flow of the tax revenue. That's really what the Roman Empire was mostly about. So keeping things calm, keeping the roads open, keeping the flow of commerce, keeping the tax revenue moving, everything was about that. 
and they're seeing this perfect storm descending on them in Jerusalem at this time. And so they are on all alert at the same time as well. This is a powder keg for the insurrection that they were fearing. It's right at this point, at the height of Jesus' fame in the, in the region, and also at the height of the animosity against him, that he enters Jerusalem through the city gates, and the city goes nuts. Let's read this in Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Sion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Palm Sunday, it's placed squarely between Lazarus Saturday and Fig Monday. Now Fig Monday, remember, is about the cleansing of the temple and about the cursing of the fig tree. This is where Jesus finally just opens up the, 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 the war lines, the front lines with the, the authorities, the Jewish authorities, because he, he disrupted everything in the temple. They think this is his move into real political territory here. It had nothing to do with that, but they don't know that. So between the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the cleansing of the temple, here he comes in on Palm Sunday. Between the height of his fame and adoration from the people, and the height of the threat that he posed to the authorities, both Roman and Jewish, and their animosity toward him. Jesus is literally crossing the Rubicon here. Yeah, he crossed the Jordan. But if you know about Caesar crossing the Rubicon, it was the point of no return. As soon as he took his army across that river, it was all-out war between him and Rome. Jesus is crossing his Rubicon here as he crosses the Jordan and comes back into Judea. It's a point of no return. He can't pull it back from this point. Palm Sunday lies right smack in the middle of a paradox for us and for everyone. Because the question of who and what Jesus is is paramount here. Who is he? <laughs> Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? This is the key issue as he's coming in and the people are reacting in the way that he is. Someone just asked me, I think it was just last Sunday or the Sunday before, why doesn't Jesus just tell us who he is? Why doesn't Jesus flat out say it? Why does he mince words? Why does he kind of beat around the bush? It's so frustrating. And that's really understandable for us. It's understandable for them as well. They wanted to know definitive answers to these questions. We still do 2,000 years later. But Jesus is trying to do something different with us here. He's trying to help us to understand that we are 
coming off of our intolerance for uncertainty. We've been talking about that for the last few weeks. We crave the certainty of knowing certain things. We want to know these things, but we can't. Human experience is an experience of uncertainty and the ability with faith to still act in that presence of uncertainty. There's a difference between a paradox and a contradiction. And we confuse the two, and we really need to understand the difference between the two of them. And then we'll understand why Jesus acts and says what he says in the way that he says it. A contradiction are conflicting elements within a single system. Okay, The elements conflict logically. They don't make any sense. It's either nonsense or one is true and the other is not true. We have to choose. A paradox is conflicting elements that are leading to a deeper truth that was previously unknown. Still conflicting elements, right? But the point is not just a logical conundrum. The point is that there is a deeper truth that this tension, this unresolved tension, is trying to point us toward. Now, if we treat a paradox like a contradiction, then it's just nonsense, or we realize we've got to flop down on one side or another, make one side right and the other side wrong. That's a duality. That's a way of thinking in dualism. But Jesus is all about unity. If we treat the paradox like a contradiction, we will miss what the paradox can teach us if we just let the paradox stand, if we let the tension stand, if we don't try to resolve the tension, but let it move us through. Here's an example. Jesus says, (laughs) if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. What do you do with a statement like that exactly? You want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. And if you try to save it, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose it, then you will find it. What do you do with that kind? See, that's a paradox. That's exactly what we're talking about. As it's just a simple contradiction, it makes no sense at all. We're going to have to choose one side or the other. And typically, we keep choosing to try to save our lives, right? But as a paradox, we realize this isn't a choice that we make. This is a willingness to stay in the tension that the paradox creates. Because if we'll stay in that tension, if we will just allow both things to be true at the same time and move along with it, slowly we will find that we're being stripped of our certainty. We're being stripped of the need for the certainty. We're being stripped of the notion that we can muscle our way into heaven somehow, right? that we can save ourselves just by sheer willpower somehow. And we will find that our vulnerability starts to assert itself more. Our sense of dependence, our sense of humility surfaces in a way that it hadn't before. And we start to realize that salvation that we so desperately want as a certainty is going to come from us from a completely different direction that we didn't even see coming. All of that is not logical, it's not rational, it's not something that can be answered in some kind of formula. But by moving through and allowing the tension to hold, we will learn something that we can't learn any other way. Jesus isn't about giving us rational answers. Jesus is about creating the tension that we need to move into this deeper truth and understand what we know and are convinced of in a way that life's tumultuous comings and goings are not going to affect. We will be able to move through the difficulties of life. 
and keeping our convictions in place if we have experienced them in this way. Now, the people of Jerusalem were in no mood for this kind of nuance, right? That's not what they were about, especially with the mob mentality that was going on at this time. They're not trying to hold on to paradox. They're trying to get some answers here and know which way to go, especially politically. And so the people are split. There's just one Jesus still. But there's four different camps that start to form around understanding who he is. And in those four camps, there are two separate opinions. Is Jesus a savior or is Jesus a threat? Which is he? Which one? How does this work? And that's the paradox. Is Jesus a savior or is he a threat? And we're trying to figure this out. Everyone on Palm Sunday was rushing to judgment in a very chaotic scene. But they were missing the deeper truth that Jesus was trying to get across. Now, Jesus is giving clues all the way along, right? He comes in on the colt of a donkey, which is referencing Zephaniah, Zechariah. And we, he was, we just read the quote in, in Matthew 21. So Zechariah prophesies that, the, prophesies that the king is going to come in on the colt of a donkey. He's going to come in peace. He's going to come in this lowly state. And Jesus comes in on the colt of a donkey in peace, not in war, not promising war, in humility, in a lowly state. And yet at the same time, the people still treat him as a king, as a conquering hero. They wave the palms, and in that society, palms were the symbol of triumph. Palms were the symbol of victory. Palms were the symbol of abundance, and they're waving them to him with that understanding. And believe me, this was not lost on the authorities looking on, not the Romans and not the Jews, what the people are saying with just these palm fronds. They throw their cloaks on the ground. They're giving him the red carpet treatment. This is how you treated a monarch. And they're shouting, Hoshiana, which we translate through the Greek as Hosanna. But Hoshiana literally means, and it's translated for us in Psalm 118, save us now, we beseech thee, Lord. Save us. And the question is what? What are we saving? What is he going to save us from? What are they asking to be saved from? And each one of these four groups has a different answer to that question because it's our primary need that reveals our bias, reveals what it is that we need and what we want and what we want to be saved from. First, there were the people. The people and the zealots kind of functioning as a block here. The zealots were the guerrillas, the, the, the terrorists, right? But the people were in kind of lockstep with that. They were looking for the Mashiach. They were looking for this warrior king. They wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans, from the Roman oppression. Very simple. They wanted their own state so they could be free and they could be a light among the nations that was promised to them from the time of Abraham. The followers of Jesus, the closest followers, they also looked at Jesus the same way the people did as the Mashiach. But they had a lot more invested. They had a lot more at stake. They were part of Jesus' program. They were tied to him. So they understood that when he came into power, they came into power. They could ride his coattails into a power that they had never known before. They wanted Jesus to save them from anonymity. They wanted Jesus to save them from poverty, from marginalization. They wanted to bring him to bring them into power and control in the way that they understood that. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the Jewish authorities. 
They saw Jesus as a threat to their power base, of course. Their power base was the temple system. Their power base was the law that they had created themselves out of the Torah, the system that they had created, that they had the people subjugated under. That was their power, and they wanted to maintain that system. They wanted to maintain that power, which means they needed to maintain the Roman client state that Israel had become, because if that falls and everything goes into chaos, that would be their power going out the window themselves. They were happy to be connected with Roman power for the time being, to wait it out and see what came next. But they saw Jesus absolutely as a threat. And of course, the Romans, you know, saw Jesus as a threat. They needed to maintain what we've already talked about, just the flow of commerce and the flow of revenue. And anything that threatened that had to be put down brutally. And the Romans did put down threats brutally. Sedition, riots, any kind of fomenting of violence they would put down. Same Jesus, right? Looked at all these different ways. And we're looking at him ourselves in whatever way we're looking at Jesus. But who is he? Is he a savior or is he a threat? Now, all of us would probably reflexively say that he's a savior, but hold on for just a moment. If this paradox that Jesus is presenting to us is really going to teach us something, we've got to withhold a quick judgment here. We've got to stop and take a breath. To choose just one or the other as right and the other as wrong disrespects and kills the paradox. It is no longer doing anything for us at this point, and it stops any further movement on our own journeys. The paradox here suggests that Jesus is not one or the other because that's a duality. That's a dual way of thinking. But somehow he's both savior and threat at the same time. But not as any of us would normally imagine that to be. Because we need new eyes to view this if we're really going to see where Jesus is leading us. And Jesus is trying to show us who he is. Every word he says, every action he takes, he's trying to show us who he is. But we, as human beings, have the hardest time seeing anything but what it is that we need and what it is that we say we want. That's what we see when we look at Jesus, or we look at anything that we hope is going to change our stars. But Jesus isn't here to give us what we want. That's not his function. It's not God's function either, by the way. Jesus is here to invite us to see what is really real so that we can also see what we really need not just the attachments and the aversions that come out of our unconscious from all of our life's experience. What do we really need? We won't know that until we can see what is really here. He's inviting us to do that. If we say we choose Jesus as threat, not Savior, then we're going to miss that Jesus actually does save us. But if we choose Jesus as Savior and say he's not a threat, then we're going to miss how Jesus saves us. We gotta see this. We gotta see how this works. Because our fears define us. It makes us see, our fears make us see everything through the filter of our wants and our needs. Are you afraid of change? Most people are. <laughs> if you're afraid of change, then what does that tell you about yourself? It tells you that you are are invested in the status quo. 
There is something that you own. There is something that you have. There's something that you've built up in your life that you're afraid to lose. And that is the thing that you're actually relying on. That's the thing that you see as your salvation, ultimately. The thing that's survival, the thing that gets you through. If you're afraid of change, then you're invested in what you have right now. And Jesus will come in on his donkey and be a threat to your power base. Guaranteed. Because he tells us, every single one of us, we need to let go of everything. We need to sell everything if we want to follow him. So if you're afraid of change, Jesus will be a threat to your power base. On the other side, are you afraid of no change? Are you afraid of things not changing? What does that tell you about yourself? It tells you that either real or imagined, you are marginalized. You are already poor. You are already oppressed. You are already a victim in one way or another. And you are yearning for change, change of circumstances, a change of whatever that will take you out of that place. And so you're going to look at Jesus as a savior, but in the sense of a fixer of your problems. Jesus rides in to fix your problems, to change your circumstances, to make the changes that you can't make on your own. If we continue to look at the paradox that Jesus is presenting us, that life is actually presenting us, always through the filter of our fears, we will miss the real Jesus. And Jesus says, this is the real tragedy. And he weeps over this tragedy. Gospels only tell us he weeps twice. This is one of those times. Let's read Luke at, nine, at verse, chapter 19, verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In another gospel, he gives that heart-rending image of the hen, you know, with her chicks under the wing. He says, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You would not let me. He weeps because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. No one did, or very few did, and we don't hear about them. Did they recognize the hour of their visitation, what it meant for Jesus to be coming in at this moment, what Jesus really represented in their lives, who he was, who he could be to them? Is it any better now, 2,000 years later? And we like to think so. We like to think we've got it more figured out, right? But the truth of the paradox is this. Jesus can't be our savior until he's first our threat. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus can't be our savior. He can't save us until he's first a threat a threat to our power base, whatever that is. Everything that we use to advantage, everything that we hold dear, that we take pride in, that we built up in our lives, that has come to define us, that we identify with, until all that is cleared out, 
by the long and hard work of the 40-ness that we've been talking about for weeks. The four S's, right? Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity, the contemplative practice, the therapeutic practice, the recovery process, whatever it is that helps us to clear out all of that stuff until there is a threat great enough that helps us to dismantle that, we will never understand how Jesus saves and what he's saving us from. Because Jesus is not saving us from the Romans. We've got to get that through our heads. He's not saving us from the external oppression that we feel, whether it's political, whether it's social, whether it's relational. He's not there to save us from that. He's not saving us from our problems, our personal problems, our circumstances, or the consequences of our actions. Those are for us to solve, not for him. What Jesus is saving us from is our fears. Because our fears are what keep all those problems in place, both individually and collectively. It's fear that drives all of that. If we can cast out the fear, and only love can do that, We can cast out the problems as well. Jesus is not here to fix the problems. We fix the problems once the fear has been fixed in a way that is healthy, in a way that is balanced, in a way that fosters relationship. We can't move fear out of our way until there is a threat great enough to move everything that we've built in life because of our fears all those defenses that we put up. See, left to our own devices, we're going to keep using the tools that were created by fear in our lives, right? To fix the problems of fear. That's what we're always trying to do. Remember Einstein's quote? What did he say? You can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking that created them in the first place. We're going to try to use the tools that were created because of our fears to fix the problems that exist because of our fears. Jesus is not going to let us do that. He is threatening that because he knows that it doesn't work. It can't work. Jesus is our savior and our threat. But until we accept his threat, then he can't save us. The paradox. Are we willing to live within the tension that that creates long enough to find what is on the other side. Every Lent, I ask God to help me shed more of the things that block me from better connection. And I remember last year, I got a kidney stone right about this time, and it was a bad one. (laughs) And I remember, I, I, I got through Sunday, And as I got home, I wasn't feeling that well on that Sunday. And the pain kept ramping up all all afternoon. Marion was at work, and I was alone home with the boys. And the pain is getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm trying to figure out, what do I do? Do I just try to wait it out? Is this going to go away? It's like an earthquake, you know? Is this the big one? You just never know until it finally starts going down the other side. But this never went down the other side. Finally, I had to hobble down the hallway, because I knew I couldn't drive at this point, and ask my... 24-year-old son at the time, if he would drive me to the hospital, and his eyes got about this big, but he says, okay, Dad, and and we're driving, and it's just getting so bad on the road. Finally, at one point, I'm starting to make noises, and and then I opened the window because I thought I was going to have to throw up, and I look at him, and he's just, you know, kind of white-knuckling on the 
I said, I'm probably freaking you out, right, son? He says, no, it's not you. It's the brakes. I, I don't, your brakes are weird on this car. <laughs> but he got me there, you know, and I got in, and then Marion, he called Marion, and Marion came down, and so Marion's by my side, and all the medical professionals are there, and they're doing the things that they do. So on that day, Sean and Marion and these medical professionals were my saviors. But I had to do something. I had to submit to them. I had to admit that I couldn't stand the pain anymore. I couldn't just do it on my own. I had to submit to a wheelchair. I had to put on that stupid gown that's all open in the back, right? I had to submit to these medical questions and the poking and the prodding and the needles and the IV and the meds and all the things that they're giving me. I had to submit to the indignity I had to submit to the loss of independence that this represented, the loss of my own capability to manage my own affairs and to do the things that I have learned I can, I can do. I had to submit to and admit that these illusions that I had about myself were just that. They were illusions. And when all of that happened, then my son and my wife and these medical professionals could save me. And they did. I had saviors all around me that afternoon, but they threatened my power base. I didn't want to let them do that. I didn't want to give up that I can do this on my own. And until I submitted to that threat, let my illusions of power go, they couldn't save me. And this is how life works. This is what it's all about. Both physical life and spiritual life. Jesus is my savior and my threat, but not necessarily in that order. Let's pray. Father, there is so much here. Simple stories that you've given us. Images emotions, characters. There is so much here. It's deceptive. We want to skim over the surface, celebrate the stories, wave the palms, but help us to slow down. Help us to take time. Help us to get lost in the details so that we can see something that's beneath the surface. We can see something that really can guide us in a way that we're not accustomed to. Help us to become willing to be threatened by the truth that you bring us, this all-encompassing truth that just obliterates the illusions that we have if we let it. But we have to let it and let you help us dismantle everything that stands in the way of our relationship and our connection with you and each other. Father, be our savior and our threat, both. Help us to accept both and live in the tension and the uncertainty. Begin to love the tension and the uncertainty so that we can always move closer to you. And once again, Father, thanks for your love and your constancy. Prepare us more through this holy week 
for the new life that is Easter. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.